Well, out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me this morning as we read together 1 Timothy, the first chapter, beginning with verse 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to worship you just now in spirit and in truth, we trust that you will speak to us in and through your word that is alive, sharper than a double-edged sword. Speak to us, Lord, for it's in Christ that we ask it. Amen. If you're a football fan, you're aware of the degree to which the game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals had been promoted for weeks, for weeks prior to last Monday night. How significant the game was. How badly each team needed to win. What the consequences would be if they were to lose. In the first quarter, with the score 7-3, to three, the Buffalo Bills' Damar Hamlin, a 24-year-old safety, made a routine tackle. Jumped to his feet, stared down the player he had just tackled, and then fell backwards. Immediately, paramedics administered CPR, placed him in an ambulance, rushed him to the hospital, where he, it was revealed that this healthy athlete, in far better condition than most, had experienced a heart attack. This game that was promoted as being so significant was now no longer even relevant. Players, coaches, fans, commentators, ESPN commentators are praying on air and are asking others to pray. You know, I couldn't help but think how the issue of death changes our perspective about life, doesn't it? Some of the individuals who had despised the morality as revealed in God's word not that long ago are now promoting prayer. We need to pray for this young man whose life is obviously in need of divine intervention. There is someone who is the author of life who also sustains life. And so then what used to be politically incorrect all of a sudden became desperately needed. But to whom were they praying? To whom we pray is significant. 
Can man, who's finite and fallen, I mean, can man create his own God? You know, they've been doing that since the fall. When the Lord called Abraham in uh, Genesis 12, it says he called him out from the gods of his father following the uh, Tower of Babel debacle. Phoenicians, uh, back 1500 B.C., would look to their god Molech. You know what Molech was? That's a statue of a, of a man with a bull's head to whom they would sacrifice their children in order to receive the blessings of Molech. That's to whom they prayed. When the idea of Molech migrated into Greek mythology, he became a titan, the father of Zeus. The Moabites, when they introduced their version of Molech, they called him Chemosh. And it's through the wives of King Solomon that Chemosh becomes a god within Israel. If you're familiar with John Milton's poem, Paradise Lives Lost, it's Chemosh that is the false god that led Israel astray. And the Philistines, they had their version of Molech. They called him Dagon. He was half man, half fish. They said he was the father of Baal, who would be called by the Assyrians Nisroch. The female consort of Baal was, the, of course, the man-made god Asherah, the moon goddess. And uh, worship of her involved all kinds of divination and fortune-telling and temple prostitution and so forth. And many of these ancient gods became a part of Greek mythology. If you go back to the 8th century BC, the the poet Homer, who writes the the Iliad and the Odyssey, exploits of an imaginary Trojan war, he does so with all kinds of mythological gods. Beowulf's defeat of monsters was followed by a pantheon of of gods from Eris, the, the god of war, to Artemis, the goddess to whom the Ephesians built a temple, a temple so magnificent it is considered one of the seven wonders of the world. You'll remember in the book of Acts that the silversmith union was making a fortune selling figurines of Artemis. And in Acts 19, when Paul confirms that the gospel that he was proclaiming was the truth, he confirmed it. How? by being able to do extraordinary miracles, that which only a divine God could do. And he was doing it through Paul to confirm his message. And you know what that was doing? It was killing the practice of sorcery associated with Artemis. And that didn't sit well with a lot of people. Matter of fact, Demetrius called a meeting of the Silversmith Guild, the union, and he said, listen, If we allow this Paul to continue telling people that gods made with human hands are not gods at all, we're all going to lose our income. And the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited. No one is going to be buying our idolatrous trinkets any longer. And man, he got the people stirred up. I mean, it was a riot. They came after Paul and the other Christians there in Ephesus. That's when Paul decides to leave on what's called his third missionary journey. But he told the Ephesian elders, he had been ministering to that church, and he told them in Acts 20, you better pay attention. 
Because when I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, speaking twisted things. Paul had spent three years with them, teaching them, grounding them in truth. But he also knows them. He knows them. He knows the culture they're in. He knows what they're susceptible to. And he knows what is going to happen once he leaves. There were mythological gods like Hermes, considered the messenger of the gods. Hermes, by the way, is the Greek word from which we get the word hermeneutics. You know what hermeneutics is, right? Those are the principles for interpreting God's word, for interpreting biblical text. Paul will encourage Timothy in his second letter to him to present yourself as one approved as you correctly handle the word of truth. In other words, good hermeneutics is essential. You must rightly handle the divinely revealed message of God's word. In Lystra, Timothy's hometown back in Acts 14, after healing a paralyzed man, the, the, the crowd began to call Paul Hermes. That's what they were calling him. Why? Well, he was the chief teacher of the gospel. And there was no question that this was indeed the truth that had been given from the God of heaven. And they called his buddy Barnabas Zeus. I mean, this is the culture of the day. As a matter of fact, if you get to the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, when Paul boards that ship there at Balta, it's got twin heads of Greek gods associated with St. Elmo's fire known today as Gemini. These are the gods who, who they believed rescue sailors when that blue glow, Elmo's fire, would appear on the mast of a ship during a storm. Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, shows up in the name of one of Paul's companions. His name was Epaphroditus, which means belonging to Aphrodite. And there were human heroes in Greek mythology like Hercules. You've heard of Hercules. There were villains like Pandora, whose curiosity brought evil. There was Midas, the king with the golden touch. Narcissus, the man who fell in love with his own reflection. And there were monsters. Monsters like winged horses, Pegasus. The lion woman, Sphinx. The one-eyed giant cyclops and all kinds of dragons this is the culture in which Ephesus is living Paul has ministered there for three years and he knows what is about to take place once he leaves we don't know exactly when Paul started this church. We do know that Priscilla and Aquila, you recognize that name, they were tent makers that became acquainted with Paul in Corinth and then they go with him to Ephesus and they begin to host the Ephesian church in their home. That was around 52 AD. They're the ones who taught the, the preacher um, uh, Apollos. Remember him? Apollos didn't have a, a, a Christian view of baptism and they're the ones who taught him the word more adequately in Acts 18. Well, Paul has spent two to three years as their pastor there in Acts 19. This would be the mid-50s. After his arrest in Jerusalem, he leaves. He goes back to Jerusalem. There's where he is accused of, um, 
falsely accused of taking a Gentile into a, an area of the temple that was reserved just for the Jews. And um, they arrest him to keep the Jews from killing him. And uh, they charge him with violating the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And uh, after uh, a couple of years in jail there, they take him to Rome where um, he's in jail for another two years, house arrest. And during that four-year imprisonment, Timothy stays with him. He's been mentoring Timothy now for several years. He's taken him on missionary journeys. He has, he has grounded him in truth as, uh, as they were together at that house arrest. And now that Paul has been released, because they really couldn't make any charges stick against him, he hadn't done anything wrong. And now that he's out of jail, he decides he's going to revisit many of the churches that he started in Asia Minor. And we put a map up last week, and you remember Asia Minor is what we'd call today Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And it's a really critically important region because it's what connects all of Europe to all of Asia. And so there was a, a lot of traffic that went through this area. And so Paul, just as he had predicted in Acts 20, when he returns to Ephesus with Timothy, it's exactly as he had predicted. The situation's not good. It is not good. But he needs to go on to Macedonia, which is west, kind of northwest. It's north of Greece, across the Aegean Sea there. And, and he has told the Philippian church that he was coming. And so he needs to go to Philippi. And so he leaves his trusted companion, Timothy. He's about 35 years old. He leaves him there in Ephesus. And so knowing what Timothy's going to be up against, even though he's been well-grounded for many years, Paul writes him these instructions, these, these words of encouragement. It's around 62, 63 AD. So the church there in Ephesus is about 10, 12 years old. He said, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he's going up to visit the Philippian church, you remain there at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. He knows who these people are. He doesn't call them out by name here, but he knows who they are. Not to teach any different doctrine. Don't be devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We don't know exactly who these individuals are. But he does say down in verse 7 that these are guys who presume to be teachers of the law. So these, these must be individuals that, that are promoting themselves to be elders within the church. That's who taught the law. Elders? Well, who are elders? Well, the Greek word episkopos means overseer. The elders are those who are to be the most spiritually mature. This is not an age thing. It's a spiritually mature thing. The, the ones who are the most spiritually mature are to oversee the growth of the younger Christians. So if the guy's responsible for teaching the truth, for helping the younger Christians to grow in their faith, if they are engaged in teaching different doctrine, if they're speculating about myths and endless genealogies rather than rightly handling the scripture, I mean, the, the church is going to be, a, spiritually speaking, they're going to be a mess. They're a mess. 
How can you worship the Lord in spirit and truth if you don't know the truth? I mean, that's Paul's point at the end of chapter 1, isn't it? When he calls out two of the guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he said they made a shipwreck of their faith and I handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. In other words, before I left for Philippi, I dealt with these guys. I put them out of the church. Why? Because Ephesus is such a key city. It's the capital of Asia Minor. That's the reason they built the temple of Artemis there. This is a critically important crossroads from Asia to Europe. All kinds of people go through this area. And here you are teaching nonsense? You know, when you have leaders in the church devoted to myths and endless genealogies that lead to speculation, Paul says, you know what, we can't tolerate that. We cannot tolerate that. Now, the Old Testament is full of genealogies, and for good reason. The genealogies help to substantiate the, biblical, the, the, the Bible's historical accuracy and reliability. They were given for a good purpose. In other words, these are not mythical characters. You understand? Noah was a real man. Shem was a real man. Heber was a real man. Abraham was a real man. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Zerubbabel. They're real men. This is the reason for genealogies. I am, I'm giving you a genealogical roadmap for the coming of the Messiah so you will know who he is when he arrives. So they serve the purposes of the Lord. That these are real people in real time confirming the divine narrative throughout history that man has a purposeful destination that leads to the glory of God through the redemption that Christ brings. That's why genealogies were used for legal purposes in that day. That's why they were so important within families and, and, and had to do with the possession of land within the tribes and the fulfillment of prophecies showing you how the Lord was orchestrating history for his divine purpose. So genealogies were a good thing. But spiritual warfare has been going on since the garden and to this very day. What the Lord gives for good, the demonic realm always wants to distort. And that's what was happening here. That was what was happening within the church. Just like the, the mythology within their culture, there were guys in that church who were taking names from Old Testament genealogies and creating mythological speculation about Jewish heroes of the past. Some believe that they might have been taking that from resources like the book of Jubilees that was written back about 125 B.C., that was just a, a fictitious account of the creation all the way up to the giving of the law at Sinai. It was fictitious. You got to keep in mind, they didn't have a New Testament canon at this point. They didn't have a New Testament Bible like we have. So it was much easier to insert this speculation from fanciful writings into their worship rather than rightly handling the gospel as had been recorded by Matthew. That's what they should have been reading from. 
or the gospel that had been written to the Romans by Mark. They should have been read, reading from that. Or given the number of Gentiles in that area, they should have been reading the gospel given to them by Luke. And they did have epistles. They had epistles from James. They had epistles from Peter, from John, from Paul. That's what they should have been using for worship. They had an Old Testament where they could show how Christ is the fulfillment of that and that's the reason that you come together to worship him. That's what they should have been talking about. And instead, they're engaged in all this speculation. They're, they're not denying the gospel. They're not trying to lead people back into Judaism as some within the churches of Galatia were doing. They're just introducing nonsense that correlates with, with what was common within their culture. They're, they're creating mythical heroes from their past, just like the Greeks, just like the Romans. It doesn't say they're denying the faith in Christ. They're just adding to it. They're just adding to it stuff that is interesting to them. You know, and I, I thought about this, and, and I've been in ministry a long time, and I look back over my life and, and think about all the foolishness that I have seen occurring just in my lifetime. I mean, look at what people have done today with the number 666 from Revelation 13. The beast, the Antichrist, right? They've used it to refer to everyone from Caesar to Hitler to Stalin to the various popes. Some, back in the 80s, claimed that the Antichrist was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in each one of his names. That's him. Uh, that was about the time that that uh, Israeli mathematician uh, was, was making money off of selling his book called The Bible Code. He was using computer formulas where he was claiming to be able to unlock prophecies about the, the Kennedy assassination. And, and it says right here in the Bible, when you look through these codes, you, you see where it says that you're going to elect Bill Clinton president. And it says that you're going to land on the moon. And it says that you're going to have a, a collision of a comet with Jupiter and, and all of these things. And people were discussing this in their Sunday school classes. They were hearing about this from their pulpits. You know, Peter will say in chapter 4, these guys, based on their speculations, you know what they started doing? When they started applying that nonsense to the church, they were forbidding people to marry. They were advocating celibacy. They were commanding people to abstain from foods in order to obtain divine approval. And in chapter 6, he says, they are just proud know-nothings. Know-nothings. All they do is argue, argue, argue about speculation. And we've had that happen from time to time even here. You know, people will come in from other places or whatever, and, and, and they've got what they think, what they think about what various scriptures mean. And they start interpreting them in light of current events. A lot of times it has to do with the second coming of Christ, you know. Um, and if you didn't agree with their views, then, you know, they, they led to arguments or division or both. Now, does the Bible talk about the second coming of Christ? Absolutely. Are we to teach that? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But we should not interpret the scripture from the front page of the newspaper. Those who have done that have been proven over the years, time and time and time again, to be wrong. And it damages your credibility for the gospel. Paul says this is not stewardship from God. In the word there, oikon omien. Oikon omien. You know what that is? It means house management. If you go to the pool this summer, they've got pool rules, right? Most of the time it says you can't take glass out of the pool deck because if you drop the glass, you break it, you can cause people to cut their feet and so forth. And you can't run on the pool deck. You can't shove people on the pool deck. You can't push people into the pool. You can't grab people and hold them under. There are pool rules you got to go by. Those are the pool oikonomians. The oikonomian of the Lord in his church says don't get involved in myths and fables and speculations and arguments and nonsense. Rightly handle his word. And when you have someone who tries to create dissension through what they think, their speculations, Paul says, put them out of the church. Just like he did Hymenaeus and Alexander. Put them out of the church. Because the elder's responsibility is to administer God's word. Why? That we might live by faith in the truth. We as a church need to know what to believe if we are going to know how to live to his glory. You can't worship a holy God according to nonsense. It must be according to spirit and truth. That's why to become a member here, we ask you to write out your testimony. Why? Well, one of the things that unites us is biblical truth. What, what does it mean to be born again according to God's word? And you know what we hear a lot of times? People will say in their testimonies, I went to church for years. And I could never figure out why I'm here. I could never figure out what, what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And then I came and heard the gospel for the first time. And it began to make sense to me. It began to make sense. I'm a, I'm a sinner. And God is holy. I can't reconcile myself to him. On, on the basis of anything that I do, I can't do it. And the good news is, what I can't do, he did. Christ's atoning death satisfied the just wrath that God's holy character absolutely demands. And you know, when I came to understand that by faith, the Lord changed my life. Immediately began to change the way I talk. Immediately began to change the way I treat others. Immediately began changing decisions that I make in life. Now, that was an ongoing process. Sanctification is a long, difficult road because, man, if you look at where I started, you would say, there is no way. Yeah, 
There is no way by human means. But the Lord is doing this in his life. And while he's not all that I would like for him to be yet, he is certainly not what he used to be. There is progress that is being made. The stewardship of God's word is transforming me. And that leads to what? Look at verse 5. What? what what's, what's the aim here? It leads to love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What kind of love? What kind of love are we talking about here? Well, these guys who are teaching stuff that draws attention to themselves, that elevates themselves, what they think, when they take these names from genealogies and they speculate about these great heroes of the past of which we have no biblical record, they're not teaching the Lord's stewardship of truth that strengthens anybody's faith. They're drawing attention to themselves. Look, look, at, how, look at how much I know. You know, when we teach Scripture, what does it do? It ought to do. What ought it to do? It leads us to love Him, doesn't it? With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only that, but as we love him, what happens? We start loving our neighbor as ourselves. And Christ said, that's how they're going to know your mind, right? If you love one another as I have loved you, they're going to know you are mine. Mine. This word for love is not an infatuated love. Eros, like you think of when you, when you think of romance. He doesn't even use brotherly love here. This is not phileo. And this is not a mother's love, storge. It's agape. It's agape, self-denying, self-sacrificing. It's a love that says that my life no longer really revolves around me. I've been redeemed for his glory. So, so my life is about serving you in his name that he might receive glory. This is not an emotional love. So this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I feel. There are times when I don't feel like doing what is right. But I do it. Why? Why? Because agape is a love that is based on conviction. And it's rooted in sacrifice. That, that not only comes from a heart that has been purified by the Lord. But it leads to a good conscience. Whatever I say to you, whatever I do to you or for you, when it is God honoring, when it is the right thing, I have a clear conscience. Unlike when I respond selfishly or I, I respond in the flesh and then what do I have to do? I have to apologize, right? I have to apologize. But not when I respond in agape see, this agape love is a major contrast to these guys in verse 7 that desire to be known as teachers of the law, though they don't even know what they're talking about. They want you to look to them. They want you to listen to them. They want to be highly esteemed by you. They want you to respect what they think, what they say. None of it has anything to do with the glory of God. It has nothing to do with loving the Lord from a pure heart and a clear conscience, a sincere mind. And so Paul says, look, there are certain persons 
by swerving from these. Talking about what are the these? The pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith. By swerving from these, what have they done? They've wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This word wandered away is uh, we, we get that from the word ectrepo. You know what ectrepo is? Ectrepo is when you twist a body part out of joint. You ever had a dislocated finger or a dislocated shoulder? When that shoulder is dislocated, your whole body suffers. Your body can't function correctly because the shoulder's out. Well, what he's saying here is a church, a church that swerves away from the Bible, wanders away from biblical teaching, that church no longer functions like it was meant to function. Now, this is one of the reasons for our small group ministry. Do you understand that? We could have another service on Sunday nights. We could have another service on Wednesday nights. We like what we're doing right now. You know why we don't? The reason we don't do that is because we know that it's easier for all of us to avoid accountability in larger groups. And so by design, we have what's called life groups. During the week, we have what's called care groups. Why? You can go there and you can ask questions and you can get answers and you can be held accountable and you can learn one another's needs and you can pray for one another. And the reason we believe that is so important is because we've had so many people who have come here and they have said, you know, I've been going to the Metho, Bapto, Episcopalio, Our Lady of the Turnpike, Spirit-filled, KJV-only church for 30 years and never understood the Bible. I've never understood what it means to live for God's glory. And some have gone to churches where they were just verbally abused each week, shouted at but turning up the heat, turning up the volume doesn't help if the content of the word that is sharper than a double-edged sword is not present. You know the most often request that we hear here? You know what we hear the most? Uh, it's very common. You know, can you fix our family? Can you fix our marriage? Can you fix me, my life? You know what my answer is? No. No, I can't. I have no magic wand. Can I give you seven steps to being a better husband? Yeah. Five steps to better marriage? Sure. Six things that you and your family can do to, to, to help make things better? Yeah. But the problem is you can do all of those things perfectly and you can read your Bible and you can pray and you can check all of those boxes and still not have what you need for a meaningful life. Why? Why is that? Because our life is not about checking boxes or keeping lists. 
if we are doing those seven steps, those six things, those five, if we're doing those all because of what we want to get out of it, it's all about me, my marriage, my family, my job, my life. We're never going to find the true meaning to life. Because what's the aim? Verse 5, what's the aim? The aim is agape love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, all our efforts concerning relationships that are horizontal, all of those keep coming up empty. So long as I am focused on me, as long as it's all about me, they keep coming up empty. It will not be until I am vertically right with the Lord that then all the horizontal issues of life will begin to take on a right perspective. My life is no longer about me, Lord. It really isn't. You are the one who redeemed me. You are the one who's called me and given me purpose. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of what happens in life, you are the one that I am focused on. Whether you approve of how I speak to my wife, whether you approve of how I treat my children, whether you approve of how I respond to others. Whether I'm in prison like Joseph. Or I'm in captivity like Daniel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you approve of me whether you approve of me. So I love you. I love you, Lord. I love you with a pure heart. And I'm thankful that you gave me that pure heart in Christ, that you've enabled me to live with a good conscience by always doing what is right, regardless, regardless of the outcome. And I'm glad that it has come to me by means of a sincere faith. You want answers to problems? Go to God's word. And you rightly handle what he has revealed is most honoring to him. And when that vertical relationship is right, the horizontal issues will be addressed because your focus is going to always be on the cross. Always. So don't fall for a counterfeit Christianity that makes life all about you. Hymenaeus and Alexander got thrown out of the church for that. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then go love your spouse. Go love your neighbor. Go love your co-worker. As you love yourself. That's true Christianity. And by that, Christ says, people are going to know you're my disciples.
When you do that, people will know you are my disciples. God's word is given that we might know how to live to his glory. It is not given for our own acclamation. So the sooner we take ourselves out of the middle of the picture and we place the Lord there, life begins to take on a different perspective. If you have any questions about that, you can go to the Connect table. If you have even more questions, I'd be glad to meet with you in my study this week. Stand with me as we pray together. Father, we come this morning and we pray, Lord, that as we focus on you and grow in our walk with you through the study of your word, through bringing ourselves in obedience to that word, bringing ourselves into submission to your will, that you will indeed glorify your holy name through us, your people. And Father, I want to thank you particularly this morning for my granddaughter, McKenna, for my daughters and my son-in-laws and my grandchildren. But I also want to thank you, Lord, for these wonderful people who have been so faithful and so sincere that you have given them to us and it truly encourages us that we might be all that you would have us to be as individuals and collectively as a church. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.